0: Hey, welcome to the inaugural episode of the 48th fighter wings podcast liberty by trade i'm going to be your host major Kevin rake i'm the chief of public affairs here at the wing and today for our very first guest we have the honor of welcoming dr brendan Mulvaney. he is the director of the china aerospace studies institute at air university and a retired cobra pilot so welcome doc- dr Mulvaney. um do you want to start just real quick explaining a little bit what we'll call cassie probably throughout the podcast (laughs) so i don't mess that up uh do you want to just tell us a little bit about that as we get into it
1: so uh first i like to emphasize we are a u.s air force organization right uh which is important because you know i work for the government so happy to come out and do this and this is a thanks for having me this is a great opportunity to come up here uh so cassie uh we um everyone that uh, works at cassie speaks and reads chinese right that's the the minimum entry And we do uh, open source, publicly available information research on uh, everything that uh, flies in China is what we like to say. Uh, And so China has the same kind of they have newspapers and they have, you know, Airspace Power Journal, the, you know, Air Force Times, uh, all the same kind of stuff they have in China. Right. And and including now, obviously, websites and social media. Uh, The problem is that our, you know, our intel agencies are uh, undermanned and overworked uh, and just don't have the time really to dig through all of that stuff. Uh, and so that's what we do, we do uh, open source uh, analysis, we, uh, we, uh, we collect all the data, we look at it, uh, we see what the trends are, uh, and, I, and I like to tell people that the Chinese are good communists. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is that they like to plan. Uh, but in order to execute that plan, they have to publish the plan. Uh, they have okay. to let people know what that plan is uh, and then how they're tracking on that plan. And so that gives us a lot of insights as to kind of the broad brush, right? So they're obviously not going to tell us what their new super secret cyber weapon is. They're not going right. to talk about space capabilities. But in the broad term, in, a, in a organizational people and training, uh, and, uh, and strategic thinking, there's, there's really a lot to be had uh, in the open source. And so that's kind of the niche we like to fill. Uh, and really, uh, we take a broad view of aerospace. Okay. They're organized a little differently than we are. So obviously the Air Force is the predominant, uh, but we look at Naval aviation, we look okay. at Army aviation. Okay. For them, rockets and missiles is a whole separate service, and so we look at that. Oh, uh, we look okay. at space and cyber, which for them is a separate force. Uh, and then because it is China, it is the People's Republic under the Communist Party of China, uh, we look at the entire aerospace industrial base that supports it because the vast majority of that is state-owned or at least uh, influenced heavily by the party. Uh, and so it really is a holistic system uh, with, with whom we're competing. And so that's what we do.
0: Okay. And that's really interesting. You mentioned that, um, you know, because with under General Brown's Accelerate, Change or Lose, you know, and, and he it's saying that the Air Force really needs to develop a, a deep institutional understanding um, of China and, and their military, but absolutely with the public available information and open source intelligence. Uh, I know even here at the 48th Fighter Wing, we don't have time to do it all. And then it's, who does it fall under? Does it, you know, we do a little bit of it as, you know, kind of the, the information warfare public affairs team, but then so does Intel. Uh, but it's it really does usually take a, a, a back burner, um, so that's yeah we, we could definitely relate there and it's but you get so much from it um and as we look at trying to understand you know china as an institution as a country as a military you know you you speak mandarin but i don't know another one single other person that, that does and i tried my hand at it one time and, and my professor told me just to stop because i couldn't get the, <laughs> the 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 tonality correct um but is that what you see maybe what we're missing or what is going to to limit us in our understanding is, you know, our our lack of language capability and really lack of like a Chinese cultural, political, military acumen. We, I don't know that we know as much about China as we probably think we do. It's just your, your, you know, your average airman. Um, And then Chinese history, I think I would be curious to know, you know, what we were taught kind of about Chinese history, you know, growing up uh, or about China in general versus how they see their history. And and I know in a previous podcast, you talked a little bit about like kind of their last hundred years and and the the opium wars. Um, But what what do you think our biggest challenge in developing that deep understanding would be?
1: Yeah, all great questions, and and I think you you started off on the right foot about the you know the open source stuff, and that's one of the great things I love about my job, uh, is because it is all publicly available, right? I get to come and do things like this for the public. I get to talk to our friends in allies and partners, uh, who are absolutely going to be uh, crucial for this fight, and just kind of raise uh, raise the the institutional understanding, right? So, uh, I'm a little bit older than most of your audience, Uh, you know, I actually studied Russian literature and Soviet studies when I was in college uh, because it was back in the Cold War days and I tell people, you know, when I was a lieutenant and captain, I knew something about the Soviet military even though there was no longer even a Soviet Union, right? Right. Um, And we just are not to that level on China. Um, Language is certainly a difficulty. When I started, uh, it uh, it was a challenge. Again, I took Russian college, had no background in Chinese before I started Learning and right. to to go over there, uh, which you know by the way, if you need it to get food and water, is probably a pretty good impetus for studying. Right. Um, the good news is that in the modern world, there are a lot more tools uh, that we have available now that are starting to make uh, the Chinese language, right, the Chinese character set, uh, a little bit less intimidating uh, to the modern generation, right. right? And so there's Google Translate. Uh, there's all sorts of tools and online things and things that are starting to make that uh, more feasible. One of the things that we at Cassie are trying to do is we've started a series called In Their Own Words, which, okay. uh, which because, as you mentioned, you don't speak Mandarin. So you're reliant on somebody who does, like me, to go and find something, uh, to read a whole bunch of stuff, to pick out what I think is interesting, then for me to translate it, and then for me to put my spin on it and put okay. it out in an article. And that's what you end up reading we think that it's much better if you can go to the source material as much as possible. And so we take the doctrinal pubs, the theoretical pubs, the grand strategy pubs uh, that China has produced, we're translating them, turning them into English so that English language speakers uh, are, you know, around the world and throughout the force have access to that and can actually see what the Chinese are talking about. Uh, And so that, we're hopefully making a little bit of a dent there. Uh, It is still obviously a really big challenge, but uh, like I said, there are ways around it. Uh, and there's all sorts of companies popping up, especially right. with the, the improving computing power and you know machine learning things like that. That hopefully will start to bridge some of those gaps.
0: Okay. Well, and I think that's a um, I'd be incredibly interested to, to look into those because it's you know while you're giving your perspective on what was written, that gives us as somebody who doesn't understand the language, the, the culture very well, contextual data and contextual translation. So that. Uh, yeah, we'll, and for for the listeners, we'll try to find some of those and put in the show notes. They are uh, all and, and up the up on the
1: Again, yeah. the great thing about the uh, open source, right? They're all on our CASI website. So okay. if you Google CASI and Air University, it's the first one that pops up. Uh, that series is called "In Their Own Words." Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, everything is available PDFable. If you're uh, if you're into PDFs, you can read them on a, a Kindle or an iPad. Uh, if you want a hard copy, we're happy to send you some as well. Okay.
0: So. <laughs> some people out there might still still prefer
1: one. <laughs> they like the pen and ink. So
0: in um, and on that I again you know we're we're kind of the the information warfare arm of of this wing, um which is you know kind of more and more becoming you know honestly a a buzz phrase in in the air force because our information operations you know career field is still very new, and we don't have any here yet uh, so I was interested to hear what how you think the Chinese perceive information operations and then our larger joint information campaigns, like, and are we being effective, (laughs) Yeah, and think?
1: And this this hits on something, uh, whether you know it or not, that actually tees me up for one of the things uh, that is kind of a fairly significant difference between the United States and China, is that China looks at the information domain as a domain of war. It is equal to the air, the land, the sea, uh, and space these days, right? And so uh, they created this new force called the Strategic Support Force. Uh, It puts together their space and cyber operations together, so they kind of created their Space Force before we did. Uh, But it's specifically to act and take the lead in the information domain. Uh, and so they see this as critical, and they have a much broader view of it. So right. uh, for them, electronic warfare is part of the information domain. Cyber okay. warfare is part of the information domain. Uh, and they are actively, uh, you know, what some could say at war, certainly uh, conducting af- active operations in that. And it's one thing that I don't know that we as, a, as you know, the DoD holistically right. understand uh, that these things are inherently political, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the PLA is not oh, the military 100%. of China, but yeah. it's the armed wing of the Communist Party. They're doing things for political reasons, um, and, and that we need to really, really understand that. Uh, I think it's great that we've taken some steps, like you mentioned, uh, you know, m- creating information uh, domain officer, information operation officers, and things like that, uh, trying to come up on step with this huge challenge. Uh, but really, Uh, you know, the communists, the whole tenant is to propagate, they have a propaganda department in the literal sense to propagate their message. Uh, And that's covertly, that's overtly, that's diplomatically, it's internally, it's domestically for them, uh, as well as externally. And the PLA has an active hand in all of that. Oh, wow, interesting. That's in,
0: you know, and and maybe not as much in in this theater, but I, when we're talking about the, you know, um, so essentially they can use IO on their own people. Which we obviously don't don't do and cannot do, and so personally, like I've experienced that in conflict. You know, with you know, if you think about like the, the Taliban and their nefarious use of Twitter, or, or you know, ISIS and in their videos, um, and, and as frustrating as it was to try and counter some of that when you when your hands are more tied, um, I think it's interesting looking at it in a competition lens versus a conflict lens, and you know, often you know, we'll, we'll tell tell leaders that you know we get bumped up against that sometime in the information space because you know some of our more pacing challengers you know com- competitors they don't have the same restrictions we do so you know we're, we're kind of finally coming up and and we have a new information warfare um category you know amongst uh officers specifically you know you have your rated pilots and now you know we get rated against other intel and ew so it's I think that that for, for me in, in my mind is going to be a an interesting challenge to to overcome. Um, you know, if it, if why, at least while we stay in a competition phase, and hopefully that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: absolutely. I, I you know, and I agree with you. I would not trade our constitution uh, for their absolutely. system, but it does right. have some strengths, and, and we need to understand what those are and how mm-hmm. how best to compete against that. Right. Uh, the example I use, and you know, I, I've used this a lot, so forgive me if you've heard it. But uh, you know, I tell people you can get somebody from military intelligence, and from the CIA, and from the NSA, and from the FBI, mm-hmm. and a local police department to sit down in a room. We could do that. Right. It would take a year and about a thousand lawyers, but we could do it <laughs> for the PLA. They True. just simply pick. They're doing yeah. it today, right? They it's yeah. just SOP for them. Uh, again, we have you know we have firewalls and we have restrictions and laws, all for very good reasons. Uh, but when we look. Uh, at the the competitor, they're just in a in a different spot than we are. There's there's strengths and weaknesses of our system. There's strengths and weaknesses there's We just have to better understand what each of those is. Yeah. So
0: and and they really use the public diplomacy and psychological warfare and legal warfare. Um, I guess that's how they categorize their different types of warfare. Um, do you mind kind of explaining that a little bit? I don't. Sure. I understood it a little bit, but I, w- I was interested <laughs> to you know somebody that's the the expert here in yeah. the room.
1: These are these are referred to as the three warfares for uh, for China, and this is really really kind of encapsulates the whole political nature of the PLA, right? Uh, because they do think of okay, how are we going to use the international legal regime to our advantage, our the PLA's advantage, right? So uh, the PLA looks at things and say, how do we use UNCLOS? How do we use the United Nations? How do we use you know some of these wonky things uh, like the Intertele- <laughs> International Telecommunications Union, right? Yeah. Which do really, really nitnoid stuff that nobody uh, really cares about and the United States is uh, really kind of uh, paid short shrift to, but they get into these organizations, which allows them to set standards uh, mm-hmm. and to set norms. Uh, you know you think about data. Data is you know one of the more uh, important strategic assets uh, going forward and how China manages, utilizes, regulates its data of its citizens or data flowing into China, right? These are all things that they are thinking about. Um, you know, at, at the national strategic level because they understand the nexus there. And, it, okay. and again, it feeds into their information domain uh, and that's why they pay so much attention to it, right? And so it's just, it's a different way of looking at it, um, but you have to understand the holistic system that, it, that it's working in. So it's great that yeah. we are trying to, trying to, you know, step up our own and, you know, figuring out how we're gonna work with those information spaces. Right. Uh, one of those things that I think we need to think about really hard is going forward in a conflict um, you know, or even in competition, you talked about the Taliban's use of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's a perfect example, but what's the next step? The next right. step is, you know, and I was telling a, a general this, um, you know, I'm not gonna go after him, but I'm probably gonna go after his aid, right? right. Because if I take out the aid, the general becomes, you know, very impactfully, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in the modern world- It's always
0: the media officer. It is, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? But, so, so if you're deployed, right, yeah. but your husband gets a letter from USAA mm-hmm. that says, I'm sorry, we're foreclosing on your house because you haven't paid your mortgage. In the modern world, you are immediately going to know that within probably hours, no matter where you are on the globe, right. right? And whether that letter is true or not, maybe, you know, maybe China can make that true, right? Maybe they can close your account or something, or if not, they can certainly make it look like it. That'll cause you some stress. That takes away from our mission effectiveness, right. okay. and those are very targeted attacks that are very likely, if not today, in the not too distant okay. future. Uh, and so that's kind of the next step of information warfare on our side. Because of those restrictions we talked about, who's responsible for that? Right. Are you in the military responsible for that? Is the NSA responsible? To, you know, is it yeah. the FBI? And how and how are we thinking about yeah. going forward? Uh, and what is that going to do to affect us? We,
0: we don't always do the we talk about the whole of government approach, <laughs> you know, very very often, but it's, you know, one of those, it's easier said than done, I think, yeah. sometimes, certainly. And uh, so interesting enough, I know later today we're gonna talk a little bit more about the European theater and China and how they affect each other, but it's it's interesting. You mentioned that like those things could be going on, and we may or may not know that it's a, a targeted attack. And I think a lot of people are just now realizing with with everything going on, with, you know, with Russia invading Ukraine, you're now starting to hear, you know, the deep fakes and information and you know targeted information attacks. Where they maybe didn't think that much about it before, maybe paying more attention. Um, but in this theater, it's at least what what we're hearing is that there is kind of a downward trajectory of uh, European and Chinese relations, um, largely because of you know concerns about Taiwan and then also some human rights violations. Um, is that do, do you see that largely to be true, or I know that's uh, it's, a, it's very broad, but I sure. didn't want to, I didn't want to get into anything that is you know maybe uh, not for an on camera no no, no, no,
1: no, sure, but uh, it is so uh, Europe as you all know, living here. Uh, although now no longer part of the EU, right? Uh, Right. uh, It's a large and complex thing, and there are uh, a whole host of uh, countries that have a whole range of relationships, right? Uh, So the ones in Southern Europe and Greece and things like that have a different relationship with China than, say, England does, uh, who has a different relationship uh, than, say, Germany. Uh, or, or some of the Eastern Europe, European countries. Uh, and so it's kind of uh, over the last decade or so, China's really tried to make inroads uh, toward yeah. Europe and trying to, what they like to do, kind of just as a broad brush, uh, they like to pick apart alliances and, um, and organizations and deal with one-on-one countries because they think then they have the upper hand. So if okay. you compare China to the EU, they're on par and the EU is probably even you know, bigger and more important. If you compare China to Poland, or China to Greece, that's a completely different thing. Okay. They do this in Southeast Asia, right? They mm-hmm. do it in Europe. Uh, and so their approach has been largely to interact with individual countries uh, and to try to pick them apart. You know, pull them, uh, pull them to their side if they can get countries to bandwagon with them, or at least uh, turn a blind eye to some of these challenges uh, mm-hmm. that you talked about in the relationship. And they did; they had done a fairly good job of that uh, over the last couple of years. We've seen the Europeans kind of really see the uh, the hand of the state and the hand of the party behind a lot of those things, right? Okay. With the discussions about 5G, the discussions about uh, what's going on in Xinjiang, as you yeah. mentioned, uh, and now kind of their their tepid reaction to what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, and the EU and NATO uh, and Europe Europe's uh, just in general kind of coming together to say, hey, this is not right, this is not yeah. what we do in the modern world. Uh, and that's really caused a little bit of a break with China. So uh, we'll see how long, again, it's complex, right? right. Because mm-hmm. just, you know, so Germany, very displeased with what's going on with Russia, but kind of dependent on them for, you know, right. gas and oil. Uh, and so China is, uh, definitely integrated in the modern world, and it's going to be comp- hard to completely separate them. But I think that they've seen a, a downtick in those relations because of those things, and that's only been in the last couple of years.
0: Man, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, so I know that was a very, a very broad, you know, question, and and hard to really get, you know, down into it with with the little bit of time we have. But it, it's it's certainly interesting as we kind of watched this, um, you know, the geopolitical space <laughs> unfold a little bit. And you said, you know, you studied. Soviet Union back then, and now the, the, that map looks completely different. Yeah, you know, but what principles still, still holds true? Well, and
1: I mean, I think just the consequence that we're even talking about China in, in Europe, uh, you know, is a result of China's burgeoning economy. Right, their right. their multi-decade uh, decision to develop their economy, to develop their military, to secure their strategic interests around the world. Uh, and to go out, and part of that is the Belt and Road, which we'll talk about later today. Uh, you know, and part of that is just this overall diplomatic effort uh, to, try to try to ingratiate themselves uh, across the world. And it it's not just Europe, but it's also in Africa and Central Asia. Okay. Uh, and so we're trying, we're starting to see them, uh, you know, in a lot more places in a lot bigger role than they had been, okay. right? So in the 80s uh, and the 90s, after they did the, uh, the reform and opening period by Deng Xiaoping, uh, you know, the economy grew and started to blossom. But at that point, they were still a very small economy. They were still fairly backward military, uh, and they had very limited objectives and aims, and really were just trying to grow. Uh, now that they've come to become the number two economy, 1.4 billion people, uh, you know, uh, by some measures, uh, you know, the, the largest navy, uh, if not by tonnage, than by numbers, right? So they're now uh, truly a, a, you know a global competitor, uh, and so just that fact has changed the nature of the relationship around the world, including in Europe.
0: Yeah. Well. Honestly, I wasn't. Even, I didn't even know they had a navy. <laughs> so, <that's> just, <laughs> so, so I think General Brown was probably right. We probably do need to understand them a little bit better. Um, I, I listened to a podcast that you did a, a while back, and you talked about that they have uh, very similar like recruiting kind of issues, especially in, like in the STEM, you know, yeah. and, and AI capabilities to get people into their military. It's, uh, you mind explaining that a little yeah, bit? And this is this their is absolutely kind of one of those
1: things that uh, you know you'll never find or you rarely find in the intelligence record because. Uh, you know, again, they're overworked, and it's not one of the things. But if you pick up, uh, you know, a, a, the most recent copy of the Air Force Times, you'll probably hear about all the stuff, the great right. stuff we're doing, the newest missile, how we rename it. Uh, but you're also going to re- re- read about, you know, who got relieved. Uh, you're going <laughs> to rele- read about a pilot shortage, right? About manning issues, uh, and the challenges that the U.S. Air Force is facing, right? The PLA has all of those same challenges, and as they try to move from a ground-based, you know, uh, uh, backward force uh, to a modern military, they face a lot of these challenges. It's easy to take a guy with a ninth grade education, and tell him the pointy end goes that way, give him an AK-47 and off they go. Uh, it's not so true when you're trying to work on a J-20, mm-hmm. right? their version of the F-35. You know, It's not so true when you're working on an aircraft carrier, uh, when you're uh, tasking satellites or you know, writing computer code. And so they have all the challenges to getting these people into the PLA, they are also competing with a, a large, prosperous, we'll call it a commercial sector, for lack of okay. a better term, right? Private enterprises and things right. like that in China that are not in the right. military or the state. Uh, and so their work, is, and this goes especially true, they have the officer problem. It's true uh, 10 times bigger uh, on the enlisted side and okay. the NCO side. Uh, and so how do you get them to come in? How do you want get them to want to come into the PLA? Uh, you know, entice them with a little bit better pay. You entice them uh, with some of these programs. Okay. They're trying to get more college students or graduates to, we'll say, enlist for the American okay. audience right. uh, into the PLA. And how do you get them, to, because you need them, yeah. if you're going to continue to do all that. And they and they face all those challenges. Okay. And do
0: they have like a, a cons- conscript kind of Well, so, here's the, yeah, so the technical
1: answer is okay. everyone is conscripted into the PLA on the enlisted okay. side, every single person. Uh, but you can volunteer to be conscripted. Okay. So so that's kind right. of where the, uh, but under Chinese law, everybody is a conscript. So okay. uh, by hook or by crook, if they don't meet their quota for whatever their, their recruiting district is, they will actually go out and pick people and say, look, you're next on, okay. it's yeah. kind of like computers. a draft number. Okay. Yes. Kind of like a draft number, right? Uh, but they really do try to entice people to, to come in and they've come up with a different couple different programs. They're expanding their NCO program. They actually have, Uh, Some programs that if you come in uh, as a college student enlisted, uh, they have some, we'll call it direct commission in NCO programs. uh, That when you go back to college, you can change your major, which doesn't sound like anything to an American student who changes his major four or five times (laughs) in his (laughs) freshman year. Uh, But uh, for them, it's a big deal, right? Uh, Because when you go to college, uh, you take this crazy hard test that tells you what colleges you're even allowed to to get into and tells you what majors you can do. Uh, but if you enlist in the PLA for a number of years, uh, you can go and change your major, right? Uh, they have okay. some loan, student loan repayments uh, and some of these programs, much like, you know, kind of okay. like we're trying to do, right? You see the post 9-11 GI Bill, mm-hmm. you see all these things to, to grow that force and the, and the, the requirements, the, the tech savviness of that force. Okay. Uh, and so we see them trying to compete with that. Uh, they're doing a fairly good job. They have some uh, some good recruiting tools. At their but it's still a challenge for them because, like I said, uh, you know Alp- Apple or Xiaomi or wherever is still probably going to pay better than than life in the PLA. Probably, so yeah. they have to figure out how do you increase that prestige and, and the perks of being in the PLA.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I and for us too, with the kind of the tech challenge, we do get a little bit of a generational challenge. I mean, we have you know, some leaders that struggle, you know, to, to save a PDF, you know, and I, you know, and I don't mean to, you know, uh, you know, make fun, but it, it really is. It's, you know, when, where a lot of us grew up before there was any tech and then going, you know, to almost an all tech, like I, and maybe that makes sense why we put more focus on, you know, the weapons, you know, the, the missiles, the, the airplanes, you know, depending on which service you're in rather sure. than, than the, the tech. But, you know, and I think also for some of those generations, those organizations seem more palatable, you know, because they're a little bit like they can just kind of, it's not as militant. You know, I think a lot of young people come in are like, I don't want to be in, in the military, even if it is to do, you know, tech data or or AI, you know, up and coming, because I think for for some I will just say, older generation. It's still a little bit daunting, and they're uncomfortable with a lot of it, without realizing how much it it, it really is um, in kind of in everything that we do. You know, we still are afraid to be chipped, but we're carrying around <laughs> one or two of them at least in, in our pocket exactly. at all times. <laughs> so, um, do do you know much about uh, about China and kind of their their push toward toward AI?
1: This is one of those things that they are absolutely all in on, right? And okay. it goes back to the, the whole part about being a communist, right? So, it yeah. uh, seems of the, like they're
0: much more comfortable with it. Well, than... one of
1: the one of the central tenets of communism is that life uh, is scientific; it's it's knowable, yeah. right? And if you collect enough data, enough data, and you have the right equations or algorithms or whatever, you, then then problems are all solvable, right? So their yeah. their doctrines, their, their 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 publications that we talked about are called the science of strategy, the science yeah. of campaigning, the science of this, the science of that, because they at their at their core believe. That if you gather all that data, you can eventually solve those problems. Okay. And this is why they are absolutely all in, they have huge, huge tech centers uh, or data centers uh, in, out in Guizhou uh, and around the country. They have absolutely poured billions into uh, AI, and machine learning, high-power computing, uh, you know, the next generation of chips, uh, you know, quantum chips and communications, all because it's, it's uh, feeding this need and this desire to reach that level where you can use all of that data, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we talk about the differences, you know, so in Chinese there was a saying that, uh, you know, the, that the road is long and the emperor is far away, uh, meaning kind of like, well, Beijing will do what Beijing is gonna do, but it's not really gonna affect me okay. now uh, here down in the province or the city level. Uh, that's largely changing, changing because of the, the technologies that we have, the capabilities to reach in, right. uh, to monitor people. Like I said, everyone's carrying around a cell phone, I know where you are. In China, okay. they have the social credit score, they have okay. facial recognition uh, to, to a degree that I think would scare even the most authoritarian <laughs> people in the <laughs> yes. West, uh, just to understand just the proliferation okay. of these, these things that are now, uh, uh, the Communist Party has at their disposal. Uh, and so that's really one of those things. And you know, keep in mind, uh, China's problems are not just external. Right, Right? they have 1.4 billion people. Uh, they've lifted 300 million people out of poverty, which is a, you know, an yeah. amazing number if you think about almost right. the population of the United States. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everyone's out of poverty, right? right? They have a huge disparity between East and West. They have environmental challenges, pollution challenges. Uh, you know, They have a huge demographic wave because of the one-child policy, which they've okay. you know, recently changed. All of these things are things that keep Xi Jinping up at night, right? And okay. so it's probably not till the end of the day that he starts worrying about the United States and, and global strategic interests. He's worried okay. about how do you feed the people, how do you get them to in- improve uh, you know their, their lot in life and, and to make their lives better than their parents lives better than their grandparents lives
0: okay so we probably are putting too much thought into <laughs> into, <laughs> into them worrying about worrying about us oh they think. certainly yeah. do
1: worry and that is that is one of the challenges that we kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier right so after 9/11 uh, we shifted our focus right so we shifted mm-hmm. our focus kind of away yeah. away from the Soviet uh, threat away from the post Cold War uh, into this new thing right yeah. China uh, really has not ever lost focus. Uh, It came into clear depiction for them in 1991 in the first Gulf War, uh, how far behind and how much they needed to catch up. Uh, And since then, they have been laser focused on the United States, on the US military. Uh, And I will say that they look at us uh, both with a little fear, with a little trepidation, uh, but also as a role model, right? And they are not afraid. They are not afraid to take uh, lessons learned uh, and, and best practices and things that we come up with and apply them. In fact, in 2015 and 2016, they did a huge reorganization. Uh, and now, if you looked at their, their structure, you would say that models the United States because now their services do something okay. which we would call man, train, and equip. They call it force construction. Okay. Uh, and they created these theater commands, which look very similar to combatant commands that are going to okay. be the war fighting organizations that now have okay. uh, uh, dedicated services, uh, forces under them. Uh, Now they only go to the confines of what the PRC sees uh, as the confines of China. Uh, So they're not global as our COCOMs are. Uh, But it was a massive, massive reorganization because they saw this is how the US fights, this is how the US fights with its allies and partners, this is what we're gonna be faced with in the future. And this seems to be what works for the 21st century modern warfare. Uh, And so they are not above uh, studying very deeply, understanding the trends of history uh, and the leaders, and then making adaptions to their system. You know, we make the joke that they always call it with Chinese characteristics, but that's right. really kind of what it is, right? Like, yeah. So this yeah. is the American system with Chinese characteristics.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And they, within those, they're the COCOM-like structures, you, you mentioned they do one of those is in, like an information Well, command? so the
1: Strategic Support Force supports all of the theater commands, okay. right? So this is a national level force. Uh, that is meant to integrate across uh, and then coordinate with obviously the the Central Military Commission and the leaders in Beijing right and so it is it is a holistic force meant to so there's going to be SSF officers at each of the theater commands uh, as well as uh, throughout the services and then leading back to the SSF so they can coordinate those things because they understand that it's that, that the information domain is bigger than a theater which kind of just gives you that right it just shows (laughs) Uh, you know so the theater command's in charge of so for example we assume the eastern theater command would be in charge of any conflict over taiwan or or in the straits there but the ssf is going to support that as well as the other theaters that are doing all the other supporting options at the same time
0: okay and do they is is that is the east are they more built up there around
1: Uh, yeah of course so naturally you know the the eastern coast of china Uh, because it is their coastline, that's where you see a lot more of the buildup, obviously directly across the Taiwan Straits, uh, you know, more missiles, more airfields and things like that. Uh, But obviously there's there's still a lot going down to the South China Sea, Um, still a lot around Beijing, the capital, uh, you know, which is right across from the Korean Peninsula, which is not always stable. Uh, you've got, you know, their strategic <laughs> rival, Japan. Uh, China lives right. in a, you know, in a dangerous neighborhood. You know, right. they have an active border conflict with India. India's got nuclear weapons. Uh, they have a relationship with Pakistan, who has nuclear weapons. Uh, although they have a, a warming relationship with Russia, the Russians have nukes, and during the Cold War, the reason that we even have a relationship with China is because they were afraid the Russians had a plan to nuke them, which they did. Well, we found <laughs> when they opened <laughs> the archives, we found they that they, <laughs> they literally <laughs> did because they came, you know, they had a shooting war. Um, you know, and so uh, the, the Chinese live in a, in a dangerous neighborhood. So, yeah, most of them are, con- or a lot okay. of them are concentrated down over Taiwan. Uh, but they are definitely uh, mindful of all the other challenges that they face uh, from all these other neighbors. Okay.
0: If you were allowed to give a number probability wise, if you can, <laughs> or, or if you choose to, is, I, I mean, but but realistically, be, you know, because like with Russia and Ukraine, we were kind of watching it for a while. So, I don't know how many people were. were you know legitimately shocked that they went in there but it's probability or can you say oh, you, you think China's gonna china is going to push
1: into taiwan yeah so i and that's that's the million dollar question right so if yeah. i had a good answer <laughs> yeah, to that right. I would be, yeah. a, i'd be a rich man sitting on <laughs> wall street uh you know yeah i uh, need that insider info too. <laughs> exactly uh it is a stated goal right uh so it's a stated goal of the party by 2049 okay. which will be the 100 year anniversary of the standing up of okay. the people's republic gotcha. of china which is why okay. it's 49 and not some other date uh, to, to achieve the great rejuvenation of the nation, which includes, in Xi Jinping's own words, the, the re, for them, they would call it reunification, right? Okay. It's not a reunification, um, uh, and that goes toward propagating their message, because Taiwan has never been part of the PRC. It hasn't okay. been ruled by Beijing in the mainland since the 1800s, uh, and so this really is you know not a reunification but the Chinese okay. mainland absolutely sees right. that as kind of the last vestiges of yeah. the century of humiliation okay. and the civil war and the last battle. Xi Jinping would love to be the guy that brings it back and I will tell you, he would be perfectly happy to never use the PLA. He'd okay. be perfectly happy to use economic means, diplomatic means uh, and all the other powers of, of the state uh, to bring Taiwan back and it, and it really kind of seemed for a number of years under, under his predecessor, Hu Jintao, uh, that those were warming relationships, right? Uh, and that Taiwan might at some point choose to come into some sort of compendium with the, with the PRC. Uh, I think we've seen the crackdown in Hong Kong, the new national security law, uh, and all those things have really pushed Taiwan and the Taiwanese public uh, farther and farther away from the mainland. So I think that's uh, more likely trending toward conflict. Now, is it in two years? No. Okay. Uh, is it five or 10 years? Mm, maybe not, it's still a pretty big lift in the PLA. They do have pretty frank assessment, and they understand yeah. what their challenges are. Uh, by twenty forty nine, uh, that's a long way out. We'll have to see yeah. uh, how the, the balance of power shifts uh, across the straits, and you know what geopolitical things take take place. Right yeah, again, a like it's happened
0: on quarter century. Yeah, <laughs> yes. you know, a couple years
1: ago, you never would have thought yeah. there'd be a full blown invasion of Ukraine. But right. you know, I think Vladimir Putin was lured uh, by his previous successes. You know, in the Donbas, uh, in Moldova, and you know the Crimea, right. and all these things that he was successful for. Um, that he really thought he'd be able to get away with this. And he didn't think the Ukrainians would put up as much of a fight. Uh, So I think that's a a tale worth learning in Beijing that... You know, the Taiwanese are probably gonna fight a lot harder than you think they are. They're not just a whole bunch of Chinese people waiting to come back to the motherland. Uh, They do want reunification, but they want it on their own terms and not with the PRC. Uh, Makes sense. It is (laughs) is hard to get across the strait. It is only across the strait, but it's 100 miles. There's no border like Russia, so you can't roll your tanks across it. Uh, It is a challenge. They have the United States to contend with. They have our Japanese allies uh, and our other allies and partners in the region. So it's a big lift for them. (laughs)
0: Well, so at least we have a little bit more time to, to get, <laughs> get more, more familiar, you know, and I mean, it's just coming out of, you know, after 9-11, and uh, we didn't get a whole lot of time in between that and, you know, at least for, for us here, and, and then, you know, now worrying about Russia and Ukraine, keeping an eye on that. So, yep. you know, I, f- I felt like we would like to be a little bit more prepared, <laughs> you know, just for waiting, and again, especially in the information armament. It's um, like for us, where we work in it every day, not everybody else does. We, you know, well, and I it's, think it's an interesting domain.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so. Well, and, and Xi Jinping totally agrees with you, right? Yeah. So the general secretary of the Communist Party totally agrees with what you just said, uh, and they understand that, which is why they're prosecuting. And I think one of the lessons they will take away uh, is just how well Putin did or did not use the information domain. Um, you know, he veiled it enough, uh, you know, and, and couched it as terms mm-hmm. of an exercise or movements that, oh, this is just nothing to see here. Uh, a lot of people didn't believe it, but it like Sounds you really said familiar, right? You know, <laughs> but it. at the end of the day, we really didn't posture as much as we probably could or should have ahead of time, right? And so he's probably taken some notes on that. Uh, he absolutely believes that the first shots of the next conflict are going to happen in the information domain. Uh, that may be kinetic in space, it may be through cyber means, or it may just be uh, diplomatic through through information, uh, public or, or, or not. Uh, but that's absolutely where he sees part and parcel. And they even talk about it maybe being the determinant factor in the next war. Uh, wow. So um, I'm glad you guys are paying attention to it yeah. here. <laughs> Super important because it is definitely going to be a key, a key factor as we go forward. Yeah,
0: and I think here for us it may be a, a little bit easier too because it's – you know, it's um, – whereas you know the difference of being here in a in a base you know conus is it's it's right at our doorstep physically you know but then so we really have to pay attention to it a little bit more um so we we do our best but then you know there's always the the battle of what's too much what's not enough to put out you know what's what's deterrent and then what's you know an opsec violation (laughs) so it's you know I, i i think hopefully the the air force you know the information warfare spectrum is getting more information it's getting more more people um and getting the right people is, is another challenge we face but so we'll, uh, hopefully you know before 2049 we'll have a, <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of a bigger iw force. but um well dr Mulvaney, thank you i know we're running a little bit short on time but thank you for sitting down and, and talking to us and uh, Hopefully, you know <laughs> my questions didn't didn't then no, salt your this, level of, of knowledge too much. But, this is
1: fantastic, and this yeah. is exactly what General Brown wants, right? And any, you know, you'll see in the. Uh, in action, order seeing You know the the updates that are, that come out to it. This is exactly what he's looking for. He wants every he wants to build that base of knowledge. He wants uh, to have more people understand what the nature of the challenge is. Right. So uh, happy to do this. Like I said, you know we work for the Air Force. Uh, we've got an Air Force website. Please let us know how we can help. Okay. Uh, no matter where you are, here or across the European theater, or really around the world. That's what we're here for. So yeah. thanks for having me today. Yeah. And uh, appreciate everything you guys are doing. Adam. All right.
0: Thanks. And then we will drop those links and the the PDFs into the show notes for. Any anybody that's interested in reading them. And yeah, thanks Great. again. Welcome to our our first
1: one question. Okay. Just it just question. yeah, it's okay. just going to be it's random. Sure. Um what would you say to the airman here stationed at Langley that this comes to you, doctor?
0: I'm stationed in the UK. I thought I was supposed to only worry about Russia. Why am I why should I care about China?
1: No, I, it's a it's a good question. Why why care, right? Especially here, especially when Russia uh is uh you know, is the most nefarious actor right here, like you said, on the doorstep, right? So that's an important question. Uh, I would say because long-term, China is a bigger systemic threat to the United States, uh, to the US military, the US way of life than Russia is, right? So uh, Russia faces a lot of challenges. Uh, It's using its military force, backed up with some nuclear weapons to try to reassert itself, Uh, but it has a failing economy. It has a shrinking population. Um, and it has this, uh, this feeling that it's no longer playing the role that it used to be able to. Uh, China, on the other hand, um, you know, is a growing economy, is the second biggest in the world, uh, is an expanding military force that is largely uh, uh, you know, um, going to be equivalent to the United States by 2049. That's one of their stated goals, is to have a global, a world-class military by 2049. Uh, you know, Russian's navy, we, we see that they have almost no navy, it's a, a shadow of its former self. Uh, they still produce some some decent aerospace uh, uh, you know equipment, uh, but even the land force stuff. It, totally not true in China, right? China is all in across the entire spectrum, uh, and they will have a bigger impact because they are more integrated uh, across the world. They have more levers of power, uh, and so it really is a longer-term strategic challenge um, to the United States than Russia is today, right? So. Uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, you know, um, we had the, the foresight to see and understand what the Soviet Union, the threat it was going to pose to us, how long it was going to be, what that challenge would be, right? The long telegram kind of laid that out uh, and served as uh, as a basic, although there was lots of adaptations along the way. Um, we need to understand what China is gonna pose and not get so short-sighted. Russia absolutely is a threat. Uh, you know, Iran still poses a threat, DPRK. Uh, you know, there's lots of threats out there. The next fight we fight probably, and God help us, probably won't be with China, um, but that doesn't mean that we can drop our eye off the ball. Uh, we gotta be prepared for all that other stuff uh, to reorganize the force for a modern modern combat, uh, but to keep uh, keep our eye on China. And not only that, You ain't going to be here in England forever, right? You joined the U.S. Air Force. They're going to send you all over the world. Uh, And it's really important to understand how the Chinese are affecting things here in England, how they're affecting it throughout Europe uh, and through all the corners of the globe. Because as they try to exert themselves and increase uh, their comprehensive national power, which is the term that they use, uh, they're doing it globally. And no matter where you are, we need to understand exactly what they're doing and how, uh, how we can combat that and compete against them. You've been listening to Liberty by Trade, the official podcast of the 48th Fighter Wing. To learn more about the wing and its mission, visit lakenheath.af.mil or connect with us through social media. Thanks for listening.